What influences our choices? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Eric Kimbrough. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Eric Kimbrough. Eric is an associate professor of economics at the Smith Institute for Political Economy and Philosophy in the Arges School of Business and Economics at Chapman University. He received a BA in International Affairs and Economics from the George Washington University in 2006 and an MS and PhD in Computational Sciences from George Mason University in 2010. His current research uses experiments to explore the underpinnings of pro-sociality, cooperation, and conflict resolution, and to identify the origins of economic institutions such as property rights. He has also worked on finding ways to increase the supply of transplantable organs, measuring the spitefulness of individuals, understanding the sources of asset price bubbles, evaluating individual theory of mind, and capturing the discovery process underlying specialization and trade, among other topics. Eric, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks, Alex. Happy to be here. Great to have you on. So, Eric, the question today that's the main thrust of our episode is what influences our choices? Um, It becomes very clear to me very quickly after reading some of your work that if there's one topic we can't cover in an hour or less, it's definitely this one. Um, So what I'm hoping to do here is to shine a flashlight on merely a few specific interesting areas of this very big topic. And hopefully you can walk us through the potential answers to this question and really where your work's coming from. But first, I actually would like to do a bit of a preface for people that aren't familiar with your field. You, you do experiments. And of course, in your work, you also study the experiments of others and their results and, and talk about that. As far as behavioral economics is concerned, can you talk a bit about how these experiments are, and studies are structured, how you look at data, and how these sorts of things can actually help us understand things like norms and cooperation? Of course, we'll get to the specifics later, but, but at a high level... How do you do what you do? It's very interesting to someone unfamiliar with it. Uh, so I always say the cocktail party version of what I do is pay people to play games. Um, so you know we use real money uh, and we set up choices that um, usually student participants get to make. So we you know recruit students out of classes on campus. We have a lab facility. They come in um, and we set up a set of choices for them. The choices that they make determine how much money they earn. So, you know, you make certain types of choices, you'll make more money, you make other types of choices, you make less money. A lot of these are designed just to test, um, you know, theories in economics about how competition works or how a a certain type of auction will allocate resources, you know, which auction works best. Um, But one of the things that uh, people quickly started studying in the lab is really social interaction, how people treat other people. So when it's possible for me to pay a cost to help you, will I do it? Um, right. If it's possible for us both to do something that you know it takes a little bit of risk, but if we both were to do it together, we could do better than either of us acting alone. Um, and so we set up these situations where people face those kinds of choices. Uh, we run a bunch of students through, have them all make the same choice, and then we look at the pattern of choices that they make and try to come up with some explanation of of what is driving their behavior. So, like very simple, uh, it's you know it's almost not even a game, uh, but there's a, a widely studied interaction called the dictator game. Uh, There's air quotes around that. But the idea is that um, one of the players is given, say, a fixed amount of money, $10, and told, uh, you can divide this money between yourself and the other person, however you see fit. And um, the standard model in economics says that people will keep all the money for themselves, because this is a stranger. It's usually done over a computer. 
you're not going to know who the person is that you're interacting with. As far as you're concerned, this is, you know, just a random person. Maybe they go to the same university as you, but uh, you, you don't know who it is. So uh, economics says people will keep everything for themselves. You put people in the lab and you give them that situation. And they're equally likely to split it evenly between themselves and a stranger as they are to, to keep it for themselves. And there's kind of a uh, bimodal distribution, meaning like about half of people or some slightly less than half will split it equally. Another equally large chunk will keep it off of themselves. And then there's a little bit of uh, behavior in between those kind of extremes. But um, so then the job of the experimental behavioral economist is to interpret that. So if, if they're not doing the, <laughs> the standard economic thing, what are they doing instead? Um, and so that those kinds of questions are the ones that motivated me um, in, in this research. It's interesting for me to note that when some people that, you know, they think of ex experiments, like maybe in a very rigid way, they just think that what, what people like you, either economists or even scientists, broad category, but, but uh, basically say is, oh, like, what are the results of this? Look at this table. But in fact, it's very interesting to, that, as you just described, and as I was reading your papers too, like sometimes what's, what's key is not just, you know, for instance, who ends up with what amount of money or whatever, but how they get there and how the interactions happen in the lab. That was very interesting to me. I think you're exactly right about that. And I would say it even more that, you know, just because you see the data doesn't uh, imply that you know what it means. Right. Right. There are, there are multiple potential interpretations of any given data set. And so, you know, you could say these two uh, patterns of choices are statistically different from each other, but interpreting the meaning of that statistical difference um, is really where the action is, I think, in, in a lot of behavioral science. Another bit of a preface question, but so I found this one cool too, that one of your papers starts by noting that some studies and observations of human interactions, especially in the lab setting, of course, you know, reveal tendencies of pro-social behavior, at least cooperation, and we'll get more into that a little later. And, and then there's a little part you wrote at the beginning, at least in one of the intros said, you know, and, and that's often in quote, violation of the predictions of selfish profit maximization. And then you go on to other things. I just found that interesting. So I'm not familiar with the literature uh, that that in depth there in your field. So I just when I read that, it occurred to me to ask, you know, is that really the standard rep, rep you know, humans have in, in, the, in the literature? Has that changed over time? Or, is, or, or most people, or, or at least lots of people still tied to this idea that put people in a lab, that's what you're going to see, quote, selfish profit maximization. And that's that. So I guess that's kind of a question about whether it's a straw man, you know, is that a real, is that a realistic model? I think in economics, um, there's a famous paper by uh, George Stigler and Gary Becker, um, it's the Latin translation of, uh, there's no accounting for taste, some, something like that, right? And so um, there's sort of a, a norm in the field of economics that what you should try to do to the best of your ability is not account for differences across people in terms of differences in their preferences. So if we can make a single assumption about what motivates people and then use external factors, changes in external factors to explain changes in their behavior, um, then that's going to be more productive than just saying every time you observe something new that, you know, well, that's because people are motivated in this way, or that's because people are motivated in that way. So I think economists really took that to heart. And so the, you know, the standard thing is you take um, a view that people are motivated by self-interest. And you can be a little broad about what the notion of self-interest is, but the typical model is that people are maximizing consumption utility or maximizing their own payoffs. Um, and then what you want to do is explain behavior, given that assumption, um, use changes in the rules or changes in incomes or changes in prices to explain why people's behavior differs across settings. Um, and the idea is that that's an extremely powerful method, right? You can explain all sorts of behavior. It's not that that model is bad. There's all sorts of things that can be explained if you just think about people in that way. But when it gets to these small scale social interactions, it seems that that model starts to break down. 
Um, and I, I don't think that, uh, you know, most economists were ever like deeply philosophically committed to the idea that people are just selfish payoff maximizers. I mean, they all have families too. <laughs> you know, they know that, um, that people behave differently in different contexts. Um, but, but there was a commitment, a methodological commitment to that assumption in the discipline because it was a, it was a way of sort of constraining the kinds of arguments that could be made. It made everybody speak a common language, make consistent types of arguments that were intelligible to each other, and that didn't depend on arguing about what our assumptions were. Right? It, instead, it was arguing about, well, did we get the institution right? Did we get the rules right? Do we know what the prices are? Right. Okay. No, excellent. I think that, that that's a great way to start it off. And I'm, I'm just going to get into a little bit more specifics here and, and tie into what you're just saying into that. So, so, so on that note, let's get into why humans behave and make decisions the way they do if it's not purely from, you know, selfish profit maximization. So let, let's start with social norms specifically, that discussion. So understanding that people act based on social norms means we, quote, from you in one of your papers, assume that people consider not only what they want to do from the point of view of payoff maximization, as we discussed, but also what they ought to do from the point of shared injunctive norms. So explain and elaborate a bit more on that. What are we talking about here? Yeah, thanks. Okay. Um, before I get to that, I, I should say thanks to my co-author, Alexander Bastroknatov, who I've worked with on a, a number of these papers that we're going to discuss today. So I think the first, probably the weirdest phrase in that sentence is uh, shared injunctive norms. So first, let me give you a definition of that. Yeah. Hopefully that's helpful. Um, so psychologists distinguish between uh, descriptive norms, which are patterns of observed behavior, um, and injunctive norms, which are shared beliefs about what behavior one ought to exhibit. And so uh, an injunctive norm tells you what you ought to do. A descriptive norm tells you what people actually do. Um, and then, you know, when they coincide, when you have an injunctive norm that co coincides with a descriptive norm, that's uh, Christina Bicchieri's definition of a social norm, that if behavior and beliefs sort of uh, go hand in hand, you have a social norm. Um, from the point of view of an individual decision maker, then, uh, I guess what we uh, are arguing, what we're trying to sort of persuade people of is the view that it's not just about what's good for me when I'm deciding what to do. It's about uh, what, what's uh, appropriate, what I ought to do. And so thinking about that dictator game example that I gave you before, right? So um, there it's clear what's good for me is keeping all the money, right? If I were to just keep the full $10, I have the most money that I could get. Any amount that I give away is less money for me and more for a stranger, somebody I don't know. Uh, but there's this question about, well, what ought one do in that situation? And I, I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, this is, this is like manna from heaven. It fell from this guy. It's not my money. Uh, it's, the experimenter's money. They just gave it to me. So why do I deserve it? Why does this other person deserve it any less? Maybe I ought to share with somebody else. And so, um, you know, there's a history of experiments showing that uh, you can you can move those intuitions around. You can move those normative intuitions around by changing the context of the game. So for instance, if I have to earn the right to be in the role of dictator, that is to be the person who's deciding what to do with the $10. So you and I compete in a quiz and whoever gets the higher score in the quiz uh, gets to be the dictator. Well, then those people feel much more comfortable uh, keeping everything for themselves, right? They've earned it. Now it's theirs. Now it's not manna from heaven. It's an earned resource. I worked harder or performed better than you. Um, it was a contest that I won and therefore it's mine. Um, and, you know, there's some sense that uh, other people are more okay with this too. So an earned right uh, tends to reduce punishment by others. So if you were a third party watching this happen and somebody earned the right to be the dictator and then they keep everything, you'd be less likely to punish them 
than if they uh, hadn't earned it, if it was manna from heaven, if it was just randomly allocated. Um, so when, when I say that people are trading off what they want to do and what they ought to do, I have in mind that, you know, you put people in an unfamiliar situation and they don't just ask themselves, what's best for me? They, they're social beings. They're accustomed to interacting with other people and those other people's perceptions of them um, and the influences of their parents, of their religious beliefs, of all the sort of uh, sources of normative influence in their life. There's a, there's a voice, <laughs> not, not literally a voice in their head, but right. you know, it, there's an imagined, uh, Adam Smith calls it the impartial spectator. I think this is kind of a, a view um, that's consistent with ours, uh, that people are evaluating their own possible actions in light of how an imagined spectator would view them. Would it be appropriate to do this? And that appropriateness is maybe sometimes in the eyes of the person that they're interacting with, but it might also be like, what would my mom think of this? What would grandma say if I did this? What, what would my, uh, you know, priest or whatever say if I, uh, if I did this? And that's what I mean when I say people are motivated by both normative stuff. So we call that social norms. Um, I don't really want to open the can of worms about arguing about a distinction between morality and norms, but I think uh, it's an important debate to have. Um, and uh, so we think people, when they make those choices, they're thinking about what's good for me, but they're constraining that also by what ought, what ought I do? What ought one do in this situation? Um, and then they're trading those things off. So someone who cares more about what they ought to do is going to give closer to the equal split in the dictator game, if that's what one ought to do. Uh, but somebody who cares more about their own um, interests is going to give closer to the standard economics answer, right? And as I said before, what we actually see in the population is sort of the two biggest chunks of people are people who give, or, or sorry, people who give nothing away and people who split it equally. So that's the kind of phenomenon that we're trying to explain. In other words, people don't just, not all the time at least, behave radically different as soon as they get put into a laboratory setting, right? It's not as if like, you know, they're not taking anything in with them into that laboratory game or not. Not saying that they don't act different in a laboratory setting. What I'm saying is that people don't seem to delete their brain and everything they've learned in life when they go and play a, a game for 20 bucks. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think when you put people in a laboratory setting, it's not familiar. It's weird. They're often, I mean, a dictator game is not a interaction that happens in your daily life, right? right. It's not as if $10 falls into your hand and someone pops up next to you and asks you, do you want to share this money with that stranger over there? That's just not a normal thing. So people in those experiments, um, you know, we as experimenters have this tradition of trying to be context free. Uh, when you design the experiment, you don't give them a lot of them being the participants. You don't give them a lot of contextual cues about what the meaning of the game is. You just describe the set of possible payoffs and the actions that they could take and how those actions determine the payoffs. Um, and what I think people do then is fill in those gaps, right? They have to interpret the meaning of that situation to themselves somehow. Uh, they're, they're in a weird situation. They have to decide what to do. Well, how are they going to decide what to do uh, if they don't kind of make up a story to themselves about what this situation means? So it could be that they come into the lab and they think, well, this is just a game. Um, I'm here to make money. Uh, and so I'm going to take the money for myself and, and go. And I'm sure some people do have that reaction to, uh, to a dictator game. But others are going to look at it and go through the sort of analysis that I went through. And they're going to say, well, I don't know. This isn't really my money. Do I deserve it any more than the other person? Maybe I ought to give that person some. Other people are going to look at that same situation and ask, well, what does the experimenter want from me? Like, why are they asking me to do this? 
And so then they're going to think about, well, how do I look in the experimenter's eyes if I keep everything for myself versus how do I look in the experimenter's eyes if I split it equally? I, I don't think we know, and I don't think we can pin down easily which one of those things is in a particular person's mind. And so the actual choices that we observe reflect probably all of those motivations. Some people more motivated by one of those things than others. Um, but in, in all of those cases, it, um, I think there's some reference to an implicit norm. So even in the case where you say it's just a game, and so I'm going to keep everything. Well, there you're referencing the kinds of norms that operate in games and <laughs> situations where the goal is to win and to do the best for myself, right? In Monopoly, it's totally fine to maximize your payoff. In fact, if you don't, you're going to lose. Right. Uh, uh, but in a game about sharing, or sorry, not in a game, but in an interaction with people where you you have the opportunity to share, if you think about it in that context, then you know the norm, what you ought to do is something different. Uh, and so I think what we're observing when we observe people make choices in these settings and when we see all these pro-social behaviors, trust, reciprocity, generosity, um, you know, concerns for fairness, what we're seeing is the product of people trying to figure out what this game means and then applying norms from the analogous situations in their daily life to the task at hand. And so really when we observe their choices, we're learning about those norms. We're learning about what they bring with them to the lab. And, and on this note, I think this is related. So in, in, in one of your papers as well, um, when it is observed that, you know, people are doing some form of cooperative or pro-social behavior in, an, in a laboratory, even in an experiment, it, it, and of course, you correct me if I'm wrong, if I pulled the wrong thing from this, but it seems like that you were saying that there was sort of two ways that the literature understands this. Uh, I understood this, that you were saying the first is that it's pretty much people self-signaling, like trying to show other people, uh, you know, who, who they are. They care about their reputations and others make inferences through their actions. That's what they care about. And then the second way that it's that's looked upon as to why, why people are behaving in a cooperative or social way is actually, again, as you were saying, because of the norms that they're actually bringing in and they actually want to adhere to those. Um, so first, correct me where I'm wrong. And then second as well, if, if, if there is sort of, again, that, that split to be aware of and to think about as we tour through this topic. So I think there is a split, but it's not exactly the one that you described. Um, so let me, let me try to give it and then I'll, I'll try to correct what I think is the, the slight sure, misunderstanding sure. there. Um, so go back to the Becker and Stigler idea that, you know, there's no accounting for taste. As economists, we shouldn't try to explain differences in behavior across people by uh, differences in tastes or difference in behavior across settings by positing different preferences in different settings. Uh, eventually, enough evidence accumulated of, you know, people being nice, people being punitive, um, people being reciprocal, people cooperating, uh, sort of when it couldn't easily be explained by self-interest that uh, economists came around to the view that, well, then maybe we just have to, you know, if it's not prices and income, <laughs> if it's not rules, well, it must be preferences. And so I think the first attempts to explain this kind of behavior were to say, well, actually what people do is they intrinsically care about being kind or they intrinsically care about being fair. Um, and then you would operationalize those in a, in a mathematical way that, you know, said people are fair. Uh, and that means that they care about how equal the payoffs are. So how close my payoff is to your payoff. I might care about it differently if I get more than you than if you get more than me. I might weight those things differently. Um, there's a famous paper by Ernst Fair and Klaus Schmidt uh, that introduces preferences along those lines. Um, and they were designed to explain behavior like in the dictator game. You can explain a 50-50 split in the dictator game pretty well if people care about an equal payoff. Um, the problem is when you take those kinds of preferences to other settings where, uh, you know, 
equal splits aren't the norm. Equal splits aren't what people do. So fairness preferences don't do a good job of explaining how people play the game of Monopoly, to, get, to go back to my example before, right? So there are contexts where uh, those preferences don't seem to apply. And so um, that's sort of the one stream has been to say, okay, choose particular models of people's preferences um, that are based on, say, distributions of payoffs or um, just they get a warm glow from giving. The more they give to somebody else, the better they feel. Um, or would they care directly about other people's well-being? Um, uh, I think those kinds of models quickly bumped into evidence for which they couldn't account. For example, uh, I already told you about the, um, the effect of earning the right to be the dictator. On So that can't be explained in a model where you just care about the equality of payoffs. Because here, it seems how much you care about equality depends on whether you earn the right to be the dictator or whether you, uh, you know, were assigned randomly to be the dictator. And so that, that's not consistent with a model where all I care about is the payoffs. It turns out how much I care about this payoff stuff uh, depends on other features that aren't part of that model. So to explain that kind of thing, uh, a second type of model came about that says, well, no, what people care about um, is, say, their image. So how they look to you, how they look to the experimenter, to um, and how they perhaps look to themselves. So self-image, social image. Do I feel good about myself at the end of the day looking back at my actions? Um, I actually think those explanations are kind of compatible with the social norm explanation, which I already described earlier. Uh, what I would say is that the, the social norm uh, in those models is what does the work of explaining how a reputation depends on an action or how an image depends on an action. You have to have some kind of normative agreement for me to know how you're going to react to me being uh, generous in the dictator game or selfish in the dictator game. And so I, I kind of view those as two sides of the same argument or, or related arguments. Um, in order to know what benefits my image or harms my image, we have to have some normative framework that we share that assigns reputational bonus or uh, decrement to, <laughs> to different actions. Oh, I think that really helps. No, that's a great distinction. So, so I'm going to, now I'm going to bring in another layer to the discussion sort of, of, of another term as we're building this, this first half of our conversation here. So how do we layer the term rules and what you meant in, in, when you talk about rules? So you've noted that people like Hayek get into the idea that, you know, people aren't just purpose seeking, but also rule following. So like, so how do we bring that idea together with social norms? When I just throw that at you here, how do you how do you put that together and help us understand how the social norms conversation you've been describing so far is is it the same but similar to the rule thing like where where do we where do we plug that into our discussion that's a great question um i'm actually i'm currently working on a chapter for a handbook in which i was asked to write about rule following um and in working on that it, it kind of occurred to me that the distinction between rules and norms is very very messy in the literature. So in a lot of ways, I've used them interchangeably uh, in the work that I've done. And I'm, I, I think I don't yet have sufficient handle on what truly distinguishes them to not want to want to abandon that. I think, um, you know, rules and norms are uh, both perceived as constraints by people about what they can do. Now, a rule might be more specific and might be codified in a way that a norm is not. But I think of them as just kind of on a spectrum, you know, uh, a norm um, is a practice that you get from either your parents, your social group, from you know uh, whatever religious teachings you might have been exposed to. Um, 
sometimes those things manifest as rules. They actually tell you, you know, uh, there are certain things you don't do. Um, other times it's more implicit. You learn it just by observing how other people interact. So, you know, is it a rule or a norm that we shake hands when we greet people or that we no longer shake hands now that COVID is <laughs> right now we bump elbows or <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but so, you know, there, I think the line between them is a little bit squishy. Um, and I, I have personally contributed to that squishiness with <laughs> some of my research. So let me give you um, why I think why you're asking that is uh, one of the things that I, I hinted at before in talking about this view that people trade off what they want to do against what they ought to do um, is that there's heterogeneity in people across people uh, in terms of how much they weight those two things. How do I weight my own interest relative to uh, my normative constraints? Um, and so one of the things, you know, when you, when you write down a model, there's a parameter in that model that we say is your propensity to follow norms. Um, and we wanted a measure of that. Um, and the way we got a measure of that was using a task that we call a rule following task. So uh, we created an experiment um, in which we bring people to the lab. They sit down digitally isolated individual computer terminals and um, we give them two actions. Let's say in the most recent version, there's just two buckets on the screen, a yellow bucket and a blue bucket. Um, we tell them uh, you have 50 balls or 100 balls, depending on the implementation, but you have 50 balls. And for each ball that you put in the blue bucket, you earn five cents. For each ball that you put in the yellow bucket, you earn 10 cents. And then we just add a little line to the instructions that says the rule is to put the balls in the blue bucket. So that's the one that earns them less money. And then we leave them alone. We let them decide how to move the balls on the screen from you know, which bucket they wanna to go to. And the idea is that the more balls they put in the blue bucket, the more money they give up to follow the rule that we told them, the higher is their propensity, this sort of intrinsic propensity to follow norms. And, and so what norm are they following in that case? Well, there might be a norm about obeying experimenters when you're in their lab, right? If they tell you to do something, you, know, you, you ought to do it. Um, these are scientists. They must be telling me to do it for some reason. You know, uh, it could also be just um, an, uh, a respect for authority of some kind. Uh, you know, but the point is, um, there's no incentive to incur that cost. There's no punishment. We don't penalize anybody <laughs> who uses the yellow bucket instead of the blue. All you do is give up more money by putting stuff in the blue bucket. But what we've shown in a bunch of experiments is that the more people are willing to follow that rule. Also, the more consistent with norms they are in a variety of other settings. So go back to the dictator game. People who put more balls in the blue bucket are more likely to make an equal split in a dictator game. Uh, people who put more balls in the blue bucket uh, are, so there's a, an extended version of the dictator game called the ultimatum game. So now, uh, after the dictator makes an offer, the second person actually can either take it or leave it. And if they leave it, nobody gets anything. So it's instead of a, you know, a dictator, it's an ultimatum. I say, you can have this or you can, uh, you can have nothing. And um, what we show is that people who put more balls in the blue bucket or who do more rule following, people have a higher propensity to follow norms. They also are more likely to reject uh, low offers in the ultimatum game. They, have, they, they feel strongly about this norm of equality in a dictator game or in a, sorry, in an ultimatum game where this is just randomly allocated resources. You got to be the ultimatum giver by, by chance. Um, so we have a task in which we measure a propensity to follow rules, but what we think of it as doing is capturing this sort of intrinsic concern for normative stuff. We get at it through a rule, um, but I think 
uh, we've shown that it applies to a variety of other settings as well. And I think you've done a great job of taking me and, and the listeners through, like you're, you're painting the picture of the, the things you studied, the, some great examples of the kinds of experiments you've conducted and things like that. And, and at the beginning, we talked about what we meant by norms and things like that. So just, just on a directly personal level, before we end the first half here, it's, it seems like ultimately you're quite convinced that, you know, we can shake this in different ways, you know, come at the conversation from different angles, but ultimately at the, the story that you're trying to tell here is just how influenced we are by social norms and how much we adhere to them in different circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I, you know, there it's, there are things, there are observations out there that would falsify this way of looking at the world. So it's not that it can explain everything. And I, I mean, I, um, so I'm committed to those predictions and then if they turn out to be wrong, then that would of course, uh, persuade yeah, yeah. me otherwise. But I think, I actually think it's a pretty natural and intuitive way of thinking about how humans operate. You know, we aren't just walking around maximizing functions. <laughs> like we, we care about normative stuff. We're motivated by, uh, by doing what we think is the right thing. And, and there's lots of evidence of that. I think, um, if, via introspection, it's available, uh, via introspection, but also just if you want to make sense of other people, you know, if you think about, um, heterogeneity in your friends, you probably know who are the conformists and who are the rebels, right? Who's right. most likely to do things because they think that's what they ought to do. And who's most likely to sort of set out on their own path. So I also think it's kind of a natural source of heterogeneity that helps me understand the social world. I think that's actually an excellent place to take our break then. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to the curious task. I'm speaking with Eric Kimbrough today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask@liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, as always, including Elizabeth Aragona, Janet Bufton, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Eric Kimbrough today. So, so Eric, the main thrust of our conversation today is what influenced our choices. And we talked a lot about social norms and, and how people apply those. Now, you were sort of talking about this towards the end of the first half, and I, and I want to get, get into it a bit now and, and your thoughts on it, where, of course, someone might say just, well, okay, great. We act based on social norms. What happens if a social norm like is that we should just go around bashing, bashing each other on the head, right? Well, it turns out that norms can, you know, make our preferences social. And this is another one of your papers and another discussion there. So maybe you could take me through that. So you, you ultimately note that the seeds of this idea are not new, right? That we have cooperative or pro-social social norms. And you point to people like Adam Smith in your writing who note our, our moral sense comes from something like an impartial spectator, which, which is ultimately, you know, we understand our own benefit and cost analysis, but also we have the ability to put ourselves in other people's shoes uh, and, and see how they would feel in that situation or, or, or what have you. So without that understanding of, of human beings, people might just think pro-social behavior is an anomaly. But if we do buy into this story that, as you said, people aren't just profit maximizers walking around doing that, and that they do have this capability to sympathize and empathize and have an impartial spectator, th then I guess it makes sense that that there's always some degree of pro-social pro behavior cooperation amongst humans. Uh, different courses takes different forms, different societies and cultures. But if, if we do buy into that story that, that you were talking about in the first half, then I guess that makes sense why we have norms that make our preferences and our decisions pro-social. I, I think you're right. Uh, but I think the question you raised right at the, the beginning of there, um, 
they can also make our preferences antisocial. Uh, so I have, I have a colleague here at, at Chapman University who with some co-authors um, have has written a paper uh, in which you can get through sort of the emergence of a norm, you can get bad norms that persist where people punish good behavior <laughs> uh, just because that's what this group does. So I think, I mean, there are reasons to expect um, that norms will be pro-social because, you know, ultimately the kinds of norms that we have, it, I think they emerge to solve particular social problems. So they help us coordinate, they help us cooperate, um, they help us, uh, you know, maybe historically help us coordinate and cooperate to attack other groups. So that, right, <laughs> that could right. be uh, um, one of the sources of, uh, of the bad side or the dark side of, of social norms. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, it definitely suggests to me that pro-social behavior is more natural than maybe the standard way of looking at behavior in economics would suggest. And, and I guess like another way of looking at it too is that um, even if someone might in a situation for whatever reason, I'm thinking of something very marginal. I don't want to talk about saving the world with two buttons on a nuke or, you know, or something like that. Just like maybe it's <laughs> in some cases the, the norms that might make someone do something they otherwise might not choose. Like, you know, these would encourage like ultimately the quote unquote good decision or decision that is at least pro-social helps others. So, so in a way, I guess, like you said, you were saying, yeah, the flip side of that is that, you know, of course, norms can also make you do bad things that maybe perhaps someone otherwise went, might not want to do. But I guess the nice part of the story is that there is the other side of that, which is maybe someone doesn't want to do such and such an action, but what they end up doing because of the norms is actually more pro-social or cooperative or however you want to describe it than it otherwise would be. Yeah. I mean, I guess kind of what your question is hinting at um, is why norms take on the nature that they do. Why, why would norms be pro-social um, and, and why in other cases might they not be? And so, you know, if you think about this as being derived from how others are going to look at you, what others are going to approve of. Um, well, one reason to expect norms to be pro-social is because something that others are going to approve of is you helping them, <laughs> right? So, uh, yeah, it's easy for me to approve. I think it's nice when you do something nice. Of course, you should give me $10. I mean. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, my friends are going to say the same thing. Oh, look how nice you were uh, to help me. Right. right? Um, and so if, if where norms emerge is from aggregating those kinds of individual judgments into something that sort of we can all agree on, maybe it's a common denominator, but it's something that we can all agree on, um, then you would expect uh, for groups of people that are positively disposed to each other, uh, that the norms would be pro-social within those groups, right? Um, but you can also imagine that if there's intergroup conflict, then uh, norms can emerge where, yeah, what's nice is to hurt those guys, those people other than us. So we, you know, within our group, we're nice to each other, but outside the group, um, we all agree that those guys are the enemy and therefore we're going to approve when you do something bad to the, to the, people from the other group. Um, so I think that the kind of cognition is fairly flexible. And one way of thinking about that is who's this sort of reference group? What's the, when I'm evaluating my action in the eyes of others, when I'm thinking about normatively, what ought one do? It's what's the, where does the voice of that ought come from? Who's speaking to me? Um, is it my parents? Is it uh, my friends? Is it my in-group? Is it my uh, political party? <laughs> right? I mean, uh, so, so, we think of norms as being defined with respect to particular reference groups. I think so. I'm doing some work with political scientists, um, uh, Mark Pickup and Alina DeRoy, uh, in particular, Eric Gronendike also. And um, what we've been doing is trying to measure norms related to uh, identification as, say, a liberal or a conservative. So, what do liberals think other liberals ought to do? What do conservatives think other conservatives ought to do? 
And those are adversarial groups in our political system, right? So it might be that one of the things that they that liberals think other liberals ought to do is stick it to the conservatives. And one of the things that conservatives think other conservatives ought to do is stick it to the liberals. Uh, they also think that they all ought to support certain sets of policies and certain types of candidates and, and that kind of thing. Um, but but the reference group matters. And then, um, you know, when you think about Adam Smith's impartial spectator, uh, how is that spectator constructed, right? And um, is there a single spectator or are there sort of group identity dependent spectators that depending on the context are relevant to my choices at one time um, and then not so relevant to, to, to choices at another time because that identity isn't salient for me at, at a particular moment. And I'm actually glad you, you sort of touched on the politics thing because I, I want to shift gears. Hopefully we can continue that, that train of thought you're on in, into that actually and get a little more specific on it because you have written about this and done some work on it. So you've, you've said that, you know, when deciding to support a political candidate policy or cause, individuals are observed to prioritize the expression of their political identities uh, because of, I suppose, the norms set up by this group or, or behavior that they think is, is good based on those norms. Um, and actually, it's interesting that you said they even knowingly will incur personal costs. You know, this could be strained family relations, a lower rage. I think you brought up the example in the paper about maybe someone really wants to work for a Republican or a Democrat, so they'll take a job, I don't know, 10K less a year or something, whatever the case may be. So, so this is pretty interesting stuff. Like when you, like, you know, we've just talk, been talking relatively generally about norms and, and why people make the decisions they do. But when you layer sort of that political discussion on top of it, I, I enjoyed, number one, the first part, which is that that is an interesting way to understand the way people work when it comes to their political preferences, that there are norms being set by political realities and groups, but also that people will incur these costs to, to adhere to that. And I think everyone can think of at least a minor example in their own life of someone who would do that. So all that to say, um, like you're already on that train of thought, but I think we should get a little more into it. Like we can talk a bit about applying everything we talked about to this political sphere. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody's been to a, a Thanksgiving dinner that went awry because somebody couldn't not say what they thought about politics, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they strain family relations willingly, uh, knowing that they're going to be miserable and they have the argument. And you know, I mean, people signal that by by prefacing their statements by saying, "I'm going to say it," you know, because they know what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm bearing the cost. Exactly. Now I'm imposing it exactly. on you too. We now can translate it that right. way. Uh, you have to wonder if it's you know they know they're this outgroup sufficiently outgroupish that they are willing to impose the cost on themselves just to impose it on the right. others. Yeah. Um, so at a more abstract level, though, uh, I think you know it has to be costly for us to be able to identify it as driven by norms in some sense because otherwise interest is a sufficient explanation. Right? If if doing what you ought to do is perfectly consistent with your self interest. Um, it's hard to tell that something is motivated by, uh, by a normative goal, right? It, it could just be motivated by interest itself. So where we pick up the influence of social norms uh, on behavior is in those cases where there's a uh, bit of a conflict between what I want to do and what I ought to do. If what I want to do and what I ought to do coincide, great. But uh, you, know, you can get this, you can fully explain that behavior with interest alone. You don't have to introduce something normative to, to explain it. So I think that's why we focus on costs um, in terms of understanding behavior. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I, I don't know if I shared this paper with you. Um, I may not have, but one of the things that I've been working on recently um, relates to this debate about how informed people are in politics. Yeah. I'll, I'll try to make it brief, but the, the basic idea um, is there's a long literature in political science and I'm, I'm not the expert on this literature. So I'm going to try to do my best to, Fair <laughs> explaining enough. it. Yeah. But, uh, but the claim is that, uh, especially in American politics, that 
people are not very sophisticated when it comes to their ideology, that uh, often they express preferences, policy preferences that don't seem to be constrained by an ideological framework. Uh, so people will claim to be a conservative and support lots of policies that most people would identify as liberal policies and vice versa, right? Um, and this has kind of been a concern among political scientists because um, if you know people don't have sort of coherent ideologically constrained preferences, how can they demand the right things from their representatives and how can democracy uh, function in, a, in an environment where people don't know what they want. They don't have coherent beliefs. Right, right. So we've been working um, on making a distinction between people's policy preferences, what they want, and knowledge of what, by virtue of their membership in an identity group, uh, the identity group of conservatives or the identity group of liberals, they ought to support. So it can be the case that people know what a liberal ought to support, and they just happen to reasonably disagree on uh, you know, agree to disagree. Like, I know what I should believe, but on this issue, I'm a pragmatist. Uh, and so what we've shown, there, there's a technique uh, for measuring beliefs about norms that we've borrowed from uh, a paper by Kripke and Weber. You basically, you tell people, uh, how, how much do you think other liberals, say so someone identifies as a liberal, how much do you think other liberals uh, like you would approve if you supported a candidate who wanted to increase restrictions on immigration, right? Um, and so that gets a belief about the approval of other people in the identity group. And what we do is we tell them, okay, you report this on a scale of one to 10, you know, disapprove to approve. If you give the same re response that was most commonly given by other people responding to the same question, we'll pay you $2. So we incentivize them to guess how other people will answer this question. And then a set of shared beliefs about uh, what one ought to do is kind of the definition of an injunctive norm, right? If, if we share beliefs about what we ought to do, then we have a shared injunctive norm. On the other hand, we ask them, uh, how much would you approve of a candidate that did this, right? So we get a measure of their own preferences, and we get a measure of the, their beliefs about the norm. Uh, and so what we show is that people's normative beliefs are actually much more consistent uh, than their personal preferences. It's not that they're ignorant. It's not that they're unaware of what people ought to support or believe by virtue of identifying as a liberal or conservative. It's that they're pragmatists and they just happen to disagree on certain issues. Uh, so a sizable chunk of the seeming um, lack of sophistication that's been identified in the literature uh, goes away if instead you measure, do they know what they ought to believe? <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, it's like you're not measuring, like you were saying, you're not measuring like you believe such and such X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. It's interesting to look at like with given that you identify as such, what should you believe or what's more appropriate to believe? That, that's a completely different angle to look at things. And it may, I, now that you've explained it, it makes sense that you get get some minor major differences between those two things. And And so now to get back to the question about cost, it's in the cases where those two things don't coincide, right? Where what I, what I prefer and what I ought to prefer aren't the same, that you can get political behavior where people incur costs. If they prioritize the group norms sufficiently, sometimes they will vote against their own stated preferences in order to support the group. Or other times, if they prioritize their own preferences sufficiently, they might vote their preferences against the norms of their group. Um, and so in the paper that I think I did share with you, uh, we actually construct such a situation where people can donate money uh, to a group who uh, helps their kind of the other political party or the other political identity. So liberals can donate to an organization 
that conservatives would like or conservatives could donate to an organization that liberals would like. Uh, and the more they donate, the more we will pay them. So they get incentivized to do sort of the wrong thing from the point of view of group norms. Um, and what we show is that lots and lots of people are just unwilling to do that. <laughs> uh, they won't donate, even though they could make money and the donation that they're making to the other organization is tiny. It's like, we did this in the UK, so it's like 30 pence uh, and they could get five pounds for themselves. So a big ratio of what they would have to donate to the other group to get a lot of money for themselves. They simply won't do it. And if we remind them about the norms of their identity before that, they're even less likely to do it. Right. So you ask them, you know, how much do you think other liberals would approve if you donated to this organization? And they say, well, no, I mean, other liberals would not approve of me doing that. And then you ask them, well, do you actually want to donate? They, they're even less likely to do so than uh, if we just ask them without reminding them about the norms of their group. Just to round off this point about the norms of the group. So you, you were talking about one of your papers that as political identities strengthen and group norm compliance will increase. So when it comes to the norms of these group, as you said, even even at a cost, this may render, and you said, quote, compromise between political groups less likely. So obviously this is, has sort of like a concerning implication, right? A lot of people, for instance, like to talk about uh, the benefits of having a, a large group that believes a, a, a certain way. Of course, most reasonable people, at least in my estimation, talk about obviously that can't be some weird militant belief, but but largely speaking, you know, having uh, shared beliefs with people, uh, a strong group, et cetera, these, these are good things relatively speaking. But, but as you were saying, there is sort of this point where if the if the function of a political party is is to be a party in a like democratic system, let's say you're sort of alluding to this before, and not not just a, a you know a group that's supposed to quote unquote own the libs or something like that, then then we kind of get into this weird contradiction, right? Where as your sort of association with this group uh, increases, and then the norms increase, group compliance increases. The, the, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is that the sort of the function of this group as either a political party or a, or a way to come to a democratic forum becomes less about that and more about just never compromising, trying to win or whatever you want to call it. That could have some pretty serious implications depending how extreme it gets. I guess one way of, of putting that is that this, the more ideology is a kind of identity, uh, the more of a problem that sort of thing becomes because it's the identification with the group that sort of provides the spur to want to um, adhere to the norms of the group, right? If, if ideology is just, a, you know, a map that you put over ideas that explains how they hang together and doesn't have any identity bearing on it, then, you know, there's not this intergroup competition polarization uh, angle. But if on the other hand, um, your ideology is also an identity or your, I mean, your party. We, we haven't done this with parties, but we think the same principle would apply for party identification as ideological identity. Um, then, yeah, one of the group, one of the things that happens with group identities is, you know, you have in-groupishness. You have the desire to help in-group members and uh, in the case of a competitive political system, also not to help or to harm the, the group on the other side. And um, to the extent that, uh, you know, individuals, preferences are more moderate than group norms are, ideological group norms are, then being asked to adhere more strongly to ideological group norms is going to push people in the direction of more polarization than if they were just voting uh, without considerations of, of group identity at all. Yeah, I, I guess in other words, instead of somebody saying, you know, I believe X ideological point, therefore I'm part of this group and, you know, and so, and so on and so forth. 
so it kind of gets reversed in a way, right? People say like, I guess if I want to be part of this group for such and such identity reasons or benefits or game for that, I better believe X or, or at least if I don't believe it, either tell other people I do or vote that way or whatever they're, they're doing. Yeah. So, I mean, we haven't studied this. And so this is just kind of my speculation on how this works. Uh, just preface that. But I, I, the way I think about it is, you know, it's not as if assignment to identity groups is arbitrary. So people join or, or identify with a particular ideological group, perhaps because of some pre-existing normative commitments, right? Um, so you know it might be that you're a single issue voter, and uh, so you join a coalition because you really care about that one issue. Um, but once you've joined that coalition, now there's feedback from the group onto you. So by virtue of being part of that coalition, they have expectations about what members of that coalition ought to support. And to the extent that you want to be a good upstanding member of that coalition, you're going to be expected to adhere to those norms to, to some extent. Um, and then the question is, how much do you do it? Well, the more you identify with that group, the stronger is the pull of that group's norms on, on your behavior and perhaps the more cost you'd be willing to incur in order to, to support the group. I, I do want to shift gears a little bit because just, just to sort of round off much of what we've been talking about today. Um, you know, you were talking to me, like we were going back and forth on email a little bit, actually. And, and you're basically saying like, look, at the end of the day, once we've sort of established that, you know, that the norms do matter. And if a listener is listening here and they, they actually are believing that and understand that topic a little better, it would be natural for them to ask the next sort of question, which is get a little more precise on, uh, you know, where norms come from, at least in certain cultures and things like that. So what, of course, that we can go an hour on that too, maybe longer. And this is a big topic, but I just want to give people a bit of a taste of it and some of your specific work in this area. So one one thing you've done is look at this is one example the the roots of corruption across various societies and found that quote kinship seems to you to be a very important factor in shaping the kinds of norms that develop. So this is kind of interesting, right? We're talking about where norms come from. Obviously, uh, corruption or behavior that you know it, it is corruption oriented things like that seems, seems to matter as you said a lot where people's norms come from and those norms come from often often kinship and seems the relationship between groups so maybe we could talk a bit about that about you know how you found that marriage relationships etc creates good or bad norms because i think that's a, a very interesting way to round off at least one area of the where norms come from conversation and and something you've actually studied so i don't think that the set of normative beliefs for a political identity group say are arbitrary right there is some structure to them um, so there's a reason that you know liberals hold certain sets of beliefs, conservatives hold other sets of beliefs. There's a there's a structure holding them together, but it's malleable as well. So you know, um, in my lifetime, uh, I've gone from the the Democrats in the United States being the anti-trade party uh, to being the pro-trade party. I remember when George W. Bush was president, um, reading New York Times op-eds that were you know anti-free trade, and now I, that is much less imaginable uh, than it was then. Um, and so there are indications that those kinds of things are, are, are malleable, but there's also a, a structure to them that holds them together. Um, I think in the case of political norms, there's sort of an argumentative structure. So the kinds of arguments that we use to justify policies then also imply other policies. And that's kind of an, at an abstract level. Um, regarding the kinship stuff, I, I think more broadly, uh, you know, there's a lot of normative variation across societies. So um, in terms of what how people solve the, the problem of social order, you might say. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, uh, new institutional economists such as Douglas North and, and others have made a, a big deal out of personal versus impersonal interactions as sort of structuring our, our social world. Um, and the extent to which people rely on those things varies considerably across society. So in a place like the United States or Canada, a lot of our interactions are governed 
more by impersonal norms of cooperation with strangers. We get along well with strangers. We trade a lot. We get most of the things we need from strangers. Um, in other societies, the uh, more, more problems are solved at the personal level. Um, interactions with people at a smaller scale, kin, uh, tribal networks, um, you know, just things that are less impersonal, less interaction with strangers. And I think a really big and important question um, is why is there variation in the extent to which people rely on those local personal exchange relations? And why do they, in other societies, rely more on impersonal exchange relations? And I think, I mean, there's reason to like impersonal exchange relations. I think people also worry about the sort of the loss of the uh, fellow feeling that comes from right. small scale society. So I'm not, I, I don't know if I want to say that one of these sets of norms is good and another one bad. I don't want to quite go down that path. Um, but I think uh, it's clear that they're different um, and that it, if you think that people's motivations in those societies are driven by different kinds of normative commitments, like that more moral universalism exists, say, in a society like Canada and the U.S., um, and more moral parochialism exists in a tribal society, you need an account of why that's the case, right? So if I take the types of agents that I think we are, the types of decision makers that I think we are, that is people who trade off what they want to do uh, against what they ought to do, and there's variation in what they believe they ought to do across societies, we need an account of that variation. And kinship to me seems to be an important determining factor of that variation because it structures the kinds of interactions that we have. So um, Joe Henrik and co-authors uh, have been working on a project. He just published a book called The Weirdest People in the World um, that tries to account for the development of uh, Western society. So weird stands for Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Um, and he's trying to explain how do we get to be so weird. That's the title of the book, forgive me. Um, anyway, the, the major claim there is that changes in kinship patterns basically force people to learn to get along with strangers in societies that have become weird. Uh, and that the sort of the default uh, situation is that people interact in these small kin-based and tribal groups. Uh, they interact with the same people repeatedly. They tend to marry locally within those groups. And they have these sort of dense kin networks that structure uh, the types of interactions that they have with other people and therefore structure the types of norms that are suitable for governing those kinds of interactions, because the kinds of norms that are suitable for governing lots of repeated interactions at a small scale between people who all kind of more or less know each other or know the tribal identity of each other are very different from the kinds of norms that make it possible for you to trade with somebody who you've never met before. And so if you think about sort of a complementarity between social structure uh, in terms of these networks of kin, um, uh, sorry, kin, kinship practices, marriage networks, uh, tribal alliances, and so on, or um, sort of a broadly mixing population of people who don't know each other, those kinds of interactions are complementary to different kinds of norms. And so I think that's one really productive way of, of trying to understand variation in norms across society. And so the thing that, uh, that I've done on this point is with two of my former students um, from Simon Fraser, uh, Duman Baramirad and Masa Atbari, um, we, uh, we looked at the relationship between uh, rates of in-marriage, in-group marriage, in particular cousin marriage, uh, and rates of uh, sort of or measures of institutional quality that kind of capture corruption. And the idea is that if you're in a society that is based on these local kin-based ties, 
you have really strong incentives to help your kin right. at the expense of others, right? And um, that at the expense of others uh, component it can manifest itself as corruption when you, when you kind of pair these norms with a modern political system or a modern state. Um, and so what we find, what we document is that there's a really strong correlation between um, the rate at which uh, cousin marriages are observed in a society and the uh, amount of corruption that you observe, a strong positive relationship. Um, we have data on Italy uh, that uses cousin marriage practices from 100 years ago and shows that the higher rates of cousin marriage in different Italian provinces in the past are correlated with measures of institutional quality today in the same way that we get in the, in the cross-country sample. And within Italy, um, there, you know, so this is kind of along the lines of, of Henrik's book, um, the claim is that uh, the reason that parts of Western Europe uh, abandon these kin-based practices it can be traced to some policies that the church had with regard to marriage. I don't want to go into too much detail, but basically the church, uh, being exposed to the church would be expected to have helped break down kin networks by the way the church inserted itself into the control of who you could marry and who you couldn't. Um, and so we have measures of historical uh, exposure to church dioceses over a long period, 1500 years. How many years uh, was there a diocese present in each province of Italy? Um, and we show that that's associated, you know, with the rate of a corruption at the regional level today. So um, you can you can kind of, if you buy that that's plausibly exogenous, you can make a causal story that says the exposure to the church, which weakened these kinship norms, uh, had an influence on institutional quality today. This is, to me, it's a really important question. Once you, like you said, once you've bought the story that norms matter, well, then where do norms come from? So that's sort of one prong of the answer is trying to understand this sort of socio-ecological factors that contribute to different norms emerging in different times and places. Um, and, and then I think the other side of it is to think about, uh, you know, how does our moral reasoning actually work and, and trying to build models of the way people reason morally, what are the considerations that they take into account? Um, and, and you can possibly get at the question from the other side starting, you know, so there's sort of a, an ultimate explanation, which is social structure shapes the norms, but there's a proximate explanation that says, okay, in the moment, how are people reasoning about what they ought to do? What are the considerations that enter into that? And those are sort of, that's where I'm going now. Those are the two prongs of, of my research going forward. Very interesting topic. And I would love to go further, but unfortunately we are out of time now. So I'm going to bring us to our formal wrap up. So Eric, in, in each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word and the chance to actually wrap, wrap things up. So we, we've talked about a lot. So let's try and go full circle if we can, put a finer point on the, on the conversation and our exploration of the question. So let me officially ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on, on what influences our choices? Like if someone was to come to you and say, this is all great, Eric, give me one or two points you want me to remember at the very least from this conversation, what would that be at a high level? If you want to give someone that sort of final takeaway, what do you want to leave them with? You read the quote earlier, um, which I really like by, by Friedrich Hayek uh, that says, man is as much a rule following animal as a purpose seeking one. Um, and so I, I take the purpose seeking um, to mean something like the economic view of what motivates people, that they have these preferences, they have these goals, and they go out and seek them. Um, I guess what I am increasingly persuaded of is that, uh, is that he's right, that, that people are also rule following in the sense that, uh, you know, 
not only do rules act as constraints, not only do normative rules act as constraints on their behavior, but in fact that um, people aim at notions of morality and, and that their behavior is seeking to conform to some view of what they ought to do. So um, I've been talking to one of my colleagues a lot about this lately, and he's, he's sort of troubled by the way in which economists um, make causality one-sided. So this is Bart Wilson is my colleague here at Chapman. And he says that um, when you think about norms as in, in the language of economics, often the norm causes people to do something. Um, but in fact, I think what Hayek is trying to say with that line is, or, or the way I interpret Hayek's line is that people are aiming at normative goals. So it's, it's both a product and a cause. It's, it's bi-directional causality, right? And, and um, so what I want people to take away is that normative goals are sort of natural objects in the choices of people. It's not just about the consumption that they get or the utility that they get from making their choices. It's also what ought they do. People consider what they want to do and what they ought to do. And both of those things shape their, their choices equally. Eric Kimbrough, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.